The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dangerous World Podcast, a special JFK edition. Uh, November 22nd is the day that uh, JFK was killed in Dallas in 1963, and Ghost had the great idea to do a little uh, you know, swap cast of sorts with a fellow that he found called uh, Corey Hughes. And I'd never heard of this dude before, but man... Is he knowledgeable? And we got some really, really interesting information out of him. Some stuff that I'd never heard before. Uh, so I hope that this will strike your fancy. I uh, haven't seen many people talking about JFK today. Uh, it's, you know, with all these conspiracy people, maybe it's a topic that's tired for a lot of us. But this is a completely new look at it. Uh, honestly, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, just to you know, try to get listens or whatever. You guys are already here, so I'm not selling it to you. It's just wildly interesting. Corey seems to really know his stuff. Um, you'll find out some information about him that kind of gives him more credibility. I don't want to spoil anything. There's just a ton of information here. I have this book, which I mentioned, I believe, in the last episode. Um, meant to release this earlier today, but had some difficulties with the computer, believe it or not. So it's coming out a little late. Thanks to Ghost for recording on his end and shooting me uh, the file for Cunt because that came out late as well. So just a real knife fight over here at the uh, Dean House. But I had this book that I mentioned called Dark Mission, uh, The Secret History of NASA. There's a little section in there that talks about the possible reason of JFK being murdered, uh, assassinated, was because he was about to disclose some information about NASA um, the joining of the U.S. and Russian space forces, right? Um, space technologies and all that stuff. And I guess, uh, allegedly, the idea here is that Russia was planning to ignore JFK, but then, you know, 10 days before his death, I think it's Khrushchev that, that said, uh, you know, yeah, let's, let's move forward and let's try and join, let's team up with the U.S. And that's no good for the global elite. So it's an interesting theory, but that's not one that Mr. Corey Hughes agrees with, and he has some, like I said, wild information. I'm not going to take too much time in this intro. This is already coming out late. Uh, full version on my Patreon or Ghost's Patreon. If you haven't signed up for either one, 
take your pick, man. I mean, uh, Ghost is a newer podcast, and uh, you know he would appreciate the support over there. So I uh, really, really appreciate support over here as well. But I mean, you're gonna get the same content, bonus content of this episode, uh, no matter where you go. So I really appreciate just you know the time that people take, man. Want to give you a little extra bonus content for this little holiday weekend, Thanksgiving in just two days. Um, Black Friday is always a shit show. I don't know how many of y'all go out. Probably not many because this community is full of people that are like, oh, I don't like to go out and be around the people. You know, it's like, I get it, but come on. We need to have our own personalities here. Everyone seems to like think the same way in this conspiracy world. And I'm not going to start ranting about that, okay? But this is a wild episode. I hope that you guys enjoy it. I usually don't like touching these topics that people have just beaten to death. This is not that. This is very, very new stuff. And all the stuff that I know about JFK, this was new. Entirely new stuff to me. So I hope you enjoy it. Check out the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dangerous World Podcast. 45 additional minutes here and over on my Third Eye Podcast uh, Patreon as well. And, you know, we'll see what's up. You know, just check it out. DangerousWorldStore.com. Gearing up for the holidays. Not telling you to order anything because... Sometimes shit takes me a while, but I'm going to get back in gear uh, with that store. And I just, again, can't thank you enough. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Let's roll into it with my buddy, Ghost, over there, My Third Eye, and the great Corey Hughes. The great and powerful Corey Hughes, as Joe Rogan would say. Let's get into it. Here we go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back uh, to My Third Eye. Today, I am joined by Ryan Dean. Uh, you all know who he is from Dangerous World Podcast and Corey Hughes uh, from CoreyHughes.org. We are going to discuss the JFK assassination. So how are you, Corey? I'm good. Thank you. Let people know where they can find your work. Sure. All my stuff is at CoreyHughes.org. Um, and uh, that's pretty much the best place because it has links to all my videos and podcasts and whatnot. Awesome. Ryan, how are you today? Good, man. Same old stuff. Just another good day to, uh, you know, be learning about some new information. Yes, absolutely. How are you? No one ever asks you how you are. I'm always good. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I I try not to ever have bad days, but when I do, they are the shittiest days <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> but well, I try not yeah. to let shit bother me. You know what I mean? But yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. Other than the yeah. puppy, puppy's having a little bit of a, 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 a thing today, so... We were rocking the Green Bay shirt. They just had an embarrassing performance against, uh, who was it, the Titans? That was god-awful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hey. You win some, you lose some. Uh, apparently, we're losing a lot, so. Yeah. All good. So, uh, where do you want to start, Corey? Um, anywhere you like. I can about- pick up pretty much from whatever questions you have we can run with. Well, let's start with the beginning. Uh, you, you break down your case and... We have questions. We'll jump in and um, we'll go from there. Because should we let the uh, people have. know what we're talking about here? Well, uh, I did say the JFK assassination. Okay, yeah, because that's uh it's definitely very interesting, significant for today as well. You know, mm-hmm. the the day that this episode's coming out here. So, um, yeah, man, it's it's interesting stuff, and I haven't heard uh, what you what you get into here Corey. so i'm i'm really pumped to hear some information i haven't heard about this man so yeah wherever you think you want to start (laughs) okay so um well most people um when 
they talk about the Kennedy assassination and um, and researchers who get into the Kennedy assassination. One thing I find is that all of them seem to study just the Kennedy assassination. And the Kennedy assassination is like one piece of a much larger puzzle. And so if you really want to understand the Kennedy assassination, for me, it goes back to like the late 1800s um, and all through World War One, World War Two, um, you know, and then even after Kennedy, uh, you can continue in world events uh, tracking things that were the direct result of the Kennedy assassination, right? Like through Iran-Contra, um, Oklahoma City, 9-11, you know, all these things, right? These, these are... These are not like to me individual events. These are all continuations of the same operation, right? So, uh, for me, when you really start to understand who was behind the assassination and how it was pulled off, uh, it really comes down to the study of relationships, right? And when you start to study relationships, you know, you can really the, 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 how big do you think the, the connection map surrounding Jeffrey Epstein is? I mean, in the thousands, right? And so when you get into history, really history is seemingly this long study of relationships. And when you study the relationships that are directly responsible for the Kennedy assassination, you'll find that the motivations and the mindset and the ideologies of the people who were behind it really go back uh, quite some distance. And so when most people start to study Kennedy and they really don't seem to understand up from down it's it's because they don't understand the mechanism by which the assassination was pulled off, right? And so you have to think, all the guys involved in the assassination, particularly the shooters and the handlers above them, all of them were working with the mafia and with the CIA and with the FBI. And in working with all those organizations who really are fundamentally one organization, right? Especially in 1963. Um you really come to find that there are outside influences that have been kind of that have kind of co-opted our country that have been in place for at least a hundred years. Um, and so when people blame the CIA or the FBI, you know, to me it's a joke because who are the influ- who are the forces that are controlling those organizations? You know, uh, and I'll tell you that their interests are not in America. They're not in, in continuing the American dream or supporting American, uh, the American people or any of that stuff, right? Uh, so it all kind of came to a head with the Kennedy assassination. And ultimately, Kennedy was killed over Israel and their uh, need for the nuclear bomb. Kennedy's number one priority, going back to 1960 when he became president, was nuclear depleration, right? Getting rid of nukes. And he was heavily involved in talks with Khrushchev on back through back channels on getting rid of nukes, right? Uh, but of course you have savages on both sides. Neither men could get anything done with the, you know, with the CIA in, uh, infrastructure surrounding him and in, in the Soviet Union with the KGB infrastructure and all the powerful people other than Khrushchev, those two guys weren't ever going to be able to work together on any meaningful level because of the forces behind them. Right. So, right. I was going to actually ask you, Corey, you know, you're mentioning, you know, the mob, um, you know, Vegas interests and things like this, which I'm assuming are kind of, you know, linked the CIA, the FBI. Are they acting against the government or are they acting on behalf of the government in this instance here? What day is it? You know, um, on Mondays, they're working with the government on Wednesdays, they're working against the government. So, you know, it's 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 they were definitely against Kennedy. So. um 
it, like I said, it's a study of relationships and you have to go back to like the 1940s to understand the relationship between the government and the mob. When, you know, Lucky Luciano controlled the docks and, you know, Albert Anastasia controlled the docks and the longshoresmen and all those, and all the unions up there. And so basically the government was concerned about uh, Nazi spies, like smuggling stuff into the country. And how do you get stuff into the country in 19, in the 1940s, you get it in the country through the docks. Right. Oh, and and that was controlled by the mob across the country. Like there were no docks in America that were not controlled by the mafia um in the 1940s and that that held true through the 1960s and probably just fell apart in the 1970s so yeah the government had no choice but to go to the fucking mob and who'd they go to they went to lucky luciano who really was not in charge of anything i mean he was a high he was a boss for sure but he was a front boss for a guy named meyer lansky and oh, no. um and when you think about it like meyer lansky and lucky luciano albert anastasia uh lucky buckalter these guys were all jews these guys were Italians, but they were not Sicilian Italians. And most people don't understand this about the mob. Most people like look at the Godfather and it's like, uh, you know, those, those are portrayals of Sicilians. Those are not portrayals of just Italians in general. Right. And so the, the vast majority of the mob, um, really had never been controlled by Sicilians ever. Um, between 1921 and 1931, you had Salvatore Maranzano, who was a boss out of New York. Um, and Joe Masseria was his number two. And he got whacked in 1931 by Meyer Lansky. Okay, Meyer Lansky sent uh, Albert Anastasia and uh, all those guys I just mentioned uh, to go take out Sal Maranzano. And when they did uh, in 1931, basically Jews took control of the mob. And that was basically – the mob boss of all time was Meyer Lansky from 31 through the late 70s when he went on the run. Uh, And all the names you hear, Giancana, Traficante – all these guys were front bosses, ultimately. Um, and so the image that most people have of the United States mafia is totally wrong. And so it, that's a crucial piece of the puzzle in understanding why the U.S. mafia would be working with the Israelis. And so the Israelis had been working with the fucking mob since 1946. Um, you know, there had been some talks going back to 45 between Ben-Gurion and Meyer Lansky. But in 46, they kind of sealed the relationship by sending a guy named Reuven Daphne to Los Angeles. And Reuven Daphne met with Bugsy Siegel. And Bugsy Siegel, a- another Jew, right? Uh, Italian Jew. Kazarians, though, right? They're, I mean, I, I understand that. That's a whole different conversation. That's okay. a vast, vast conversation right there. So sure. I was just sure. Saying, yeah. Just for, for sake of, um, you know, uh, and I'm not like overly sensitive about shit, but like the whole idea that like the Jews are ruining, you know, uh, the the whole world for everybody else. It's a specific sect right, of right. people, right? I mean, like it's right. a, it's a very interesting situation. Yeah, right. You're talking about like ultimately the Zionists. And, yes, exactly. Um, right, and that's that becomes a very complicated conversation because in modern day in the modern day world, see when you look at what Zionism is, and that to me goes back to 1897 and Theodor Herzl and 1894 and like the Dreyfus Affair, which inspired Herzl. But ultimately, Herzl was a complete fucking rabid um, anti-Semite to himself. Like, he believed that there were two distinct classes of Jews, that there were the upper class aristocratic Jews who control everything and openly admit it and who are total cunts. And then there are the regular Jews out there in the world who are just, you know, might not even be very religious, but they're born to Jewish families. And that makes up really the majority of Jewish people. Right. And they knew this. Um, when they kind of formulated political Zionism and they, 
really had no respect or uh, they had a lot of disdain for the average Jew because they felt that they were kind of a poor representation of the brand. Mm. It's really kind of how when you read Herzl's diaries, um, he befriended and fostered anti-Semitism amongst non-Jews because he hoped to undermine Jewish wealth all over the world. And once Jews felt like they were undermined in every country around the world, then that would cause such a fervor for there to create a state of Israel for all the Jews to go and return to, right? So these these Zionists, these early Zionists, really instigated the anti-Semitism, and they continue it to this very day. Organizations like the ADL, they continue to foster anti-Semitism, and they go, ha, see, anti-Semite, we're yeah. here to save the fucking day. And Same thing with BLM. Yeah, Same thing with BLM. It's a total yeah. fucking ploy. Uh, but the bottom, but, but, but the, the difference is the ADL are true ideologues. They're true ideologues. I mean, they're fucking lunatics at heart. They're the ultimate in racists, period. They're, right. they're Jewish supremacists of the highest degree, which is kind of funny because modern day Jews are not descended from the Israelites. They're descended from the Khazarians. Yes. They're descended okay. from the Khazars. Uh, they're descendants of converts, right? And so we get this moral high ground from the entire seemingly the entire world of Jewish people. And they're not even descendant from the fucking people they claim. Their origins are not what they claim. They're, it's, they're, they're, they're a bunch of fucking phonies. Sorry, but that's the reality. Like, they're all, it's like, the, the, the analogy I'll give is like, that episode of South Park when Cartman went off and became a rapper. And then he's like, y'all just hate me because I'm black. Right? Well, it's hey, like... I'll take it a step further. Have you seen where <laughs> Cartman becomes a rabbi in the future? That's... No, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> and Kyle thinks it's like a giant ploy just to fuck with him because he's always making fun of the Jews. So it's hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, but I quote see, that's whole... all the time. I'm glad you do too, Corey. This is it, awesome. It's, 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 it's a conversation that like, I try to avoid at all costs because yeah. it really just doesn't fucking help the conversation at all. Right. I mean, it's the ultimate black pill, really. And so Kennedy, it's, it's kind of hard to separate Kennedy from that because those are the people who were behind the assassination, right? When you come to understand the relationship between the Israelis, the CIA, and the mafia, they're one organization in 1963, inseparable. And the, the amount of like traitorous espionage that went on, like on multiple continents because of those organizations and their relationships with like the Corsican mafia and like, then they have like a corporate infrastructure through uh, businesses like there was a company called Permindex. Mm -hmm. uh, which was a Mossad front company. And basically they were like the oversight board for assassinations. Uh, and, the, and the oversight board was the, the board of directors was like a who's who of like mob guys, CIA guys, intelligence guys. Like you just uh, every fucking possible scumbag um, had representation inside of Permindex. And so Permindex, which was founded by a guy named George Mandel and uh, AKA George Mantello, um, he basically was a Mossad spy. He's hailed as like a hero and during the Holocaust, but that's all like bullshit, you know, cover story. Um, he founded Permindex um, basically so they could fund right wing organizations in Europe to undermine dem democracies. Right. That's what they did. And so um, they're responsible for numerous attempts on the life of Charles de Gaulle. There was actually a movie made about it called um, Day of the Jackal. Uh, Day of the Jackal came out in the 1970s, shortly after these events happened. Mm. Kind of interesting, kind of makes you think, how did Hollywood get some inf inside information that, to make these movies so shortly after these assassination attempts occurred? And then you come to think about it, and you're like, oh, yeah, Jack Valente was the man running Hollywood from 66 to, to like 2007, 40 years he ran Hollywood. And he was the shooter on the grassy knoll, okay? And so um, – when you come to understand the relationships of these people and like the intertangledness between the media and intelligence, and it's just like 
the world is such a scary fucking place and nobody has any idea really um but uh where was i I have a tendency to go off on tangents so you have to ring me back in every once in a while that was a solid tangent to go down i mean uh, you're speaking of permindex and they owned a subsidiary of theirs if i'm not mistaken was either hotels or resorts international and... Um, well, they owned um, Central Mondial Commercial was the only subsidiary, and Central Mondial Commercial was basically it it owned stock. Basically, it bought stock in companies that were manufacturing parts for nuclear reactors or energy or oil, um, and that's all they did. They were a funneler of money, and they hid the funneling of the funding for the assassination through um, other trade deals that they did for commodities and things like that. But that's all they did. Um, but no, they owned, there was like, um, like Hilton hotels, um, oh, yeah. Hyatt hotels, like all these hotel companies were all in bed with the CIA. The CIA recruited so many people and they really did it mostly when they were the OSS during World War II because they recruited 40,000 plus people, um, in four years during the war. And so then the CIA, quote unquote, isn't there until 47. Um, but then in 47, all those recruitments from the OSS days, they just pulled back into their network. And when in 47, when the CIA flipped on the lights, they immediately had networks in the, in the multi-millions around the world that they could access instantaneously. So uh, when people would try to wonder how they gained so much power like right away, that's how they did it, by recruiting Nazis and their entire spy networks uh, and by recruiting businessmen, by recruiting former heads of governments who still had influence, you know, like by the time the CIA came about in 47, which really was the product of Reinhard Galen, um, you had like uh, Bill Donovan and Alan Dulles and Angleton and those guys who were the big shots in the OSS, but like they seemingly lacked guidance. And so um, after the war, they cut a deal with Reinhard Galen, right? So Adolf Hitler's spy master and the head general in the, in the German army. <laughs> who eventually they will put back in charge of German intelligence in 47 or 48, which is hilarious. But between 45 and 47, these guys were down in South America with over 200,000 fucking Nazis that they had smuggled out of um, Africa, North Africa and Europe, like prior to paperclip. Lines. Everyone talks about fucking paperclip. Paperclip is a joke compared to, the, I, I can't recall the operation name before. It might've been like avalanche or something like that. I don't remember it. But there was an operation to smuggle the fucking Nazis out of Europe and Africa, and they smuggled about 230,000 of them into South America. And then those Nazis went on to become what was called the Galen Organization. And the Galen Organization is like the the one organization in the world no one ever knows about, no one ever talks about, and has shaped the world to a degree that would blow your fucking mind. Like the Galen Organization is responsible for creating NATO, the 17 intelligence agencies, including the BND, which is the German intelligence agency, which then – you know, after being the top German fucking spy, um, Alan Dulles puts him back in charge of the German intelligence and basically managing over this new alliance under like the United Nations and NATO and all that stuff. Right. So initially, NATO was like a job. Huh? That's, yeah, that's definitely... Oh, yeah. But he fucking played them so well because what he did was like he had all of Germany's intelligence, but he didn't just give it to him. He like had his men bury it like the Nazi gold like and they. Took because that back then it was all on paper, right? Like, and so they took paper in, in huge boxes and crates and just buried it all over fucking Europe, and that was his bargaining chip. And I don't even know that all of it is has been recovered at this point. Uh, just that so we know the Nazi gold hasn't all been recovered. I mean, perhaps it has, and we just don't know about it. But, but yeah, that's how that's how Reinhard Galen got his foothold in American intelligence, and he basically went on to form the security state that we live under today. So if you want to understand why the world seems like it's run by a bunch of fucking Nazis, it's we because are. it was built by Nazis. 
I, I have one question. I don't know if it, it ties into anything. Um, the CIA was founded in, in 47. Correct. From the, from the OSS. And then in 48, Israel, the state is, is formed. Is there, Correct. is there any type of, I mean, to me, that looks like a coincidence <laughs> yes. to me. These you are all what the what same mean? people. No. Like you can't, don't even try to separate <laughs> these people. Like they might be different governments, different religions, whatever. These people are one organization that basically formed the cabal that still is today. I mean, you can trace these people's actions from immediately after World War II, especially like the fucking Israelis or the, I call them the Israelis because even though the Israel isn't around yet, it's this literally the same fucking people causing havoc going back to like the twenties. Right. So even before World War II, it's the fucking Israelis like Ben Gurion and Chaim Wiseman and all of these fucking guys, like worst people that have ever walked planet earth. So um, it doesn't it go it back way... for me to say, and, and I might get a little bit of heat for this, that the Palestinians are actually the good guys in, in this situation over there. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a given. But the reality is the original Israelites were black, right. black, black, black Africans. Um, so, you know, all the alleged traditions and cultures that go back 5000 years, they don't. They go back about 1500 years to about the really about 550 A.D. with the codification of the Babylonian Talmud, which has nothing to do with the black Israelites who fucking basically went extinct post 70 A.D. So allegedly 70 AD, you have the expulsion of the Jews, which they weren't even called Jews back then. They were expelled from Palestine at the, when the temple was destroyed, right? But this is like um, where modern day Palestine is, right? And so all these people who had been, see the original location of Palestine, the original location of the first temple, there's a lot of evidence that indicates it wasn't even in modern Palestine. It was actually in a region of Northern Ethiopia. And that would kind of co-align, that would kind of align with the Ethiopians who claim to have um, the Ark in a fucking temple there, right? So um, the, the all the original, when you look at things like the Shushan temple, right, right. And so when you look at all the original um hebrew artifacts and all the original impressions and paintings and they all indicate that the, these were black people like with big afros and big afro beards and stuff like had nothing to do there were no fucking white people who were slaves in egypt five thousand years ago it's just a fucking joke um so but yeah like the kazarians were an empire unto themselves and kind of like genghis khan is described as an empire of tents right like they were they followed a religion called Tangridism, which was kind of like a black magic, shamanistic kind of thing. It's the same thing that Sela the Hun and those guys all uh, all were a part of. Um, and so, but th the word on the street, and nobody really knows because a lot of these old documents pertaining to um, Kazaria have been destroyed. Wonder why. Um, so there's not a lot of really verifiable history. There's only a couple books that have some things that were translated from you know, other other books from hundreds of years ago. So it's really hard to pin down, but um, it appears as though the Khazarians, the Khazarian Empire, the leadership was forced to convert to one of the Abrahamic religions, right? And so they picked Judaism um, and they were basically forced to stick with it. And they adopted the new, at the time, new Babylonian Talmud, um, but they kind of melded it with their black magic practices right and so these were the original white jews in the world period there were no white jews on the planet until 740 ad when these kazarians converted right um but allegedly they integrated their black magic practices into 
uh, the religion itself, right? They kind of made this hybridization. Uh, and that is eventually beca- what became modern day Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you have see what you have, what you have is in twelve in about twelve hundred twelve twenty A.D. You have the Russians, so they were pre-Soviets, right? So you have the Russian Empire, and so they've just ba- basically had enough of the Khazarians, and they invade and they force the Khazarians to scatter. And so this is completely completely coincides with the timing of you see if you see in the history books about the great influx of white Jews into Europe settling in Poland and Germany and other places, right? So the expulsion of the Khazarians completely coincides with the modern history of the Jewish uh, influx in the 12th, in the 13th century. Oh shit. Now I can kind of see, oh, I'm going to get heat, heat again. Yeah. Hitler, I get heat for this Hitler. all the time. And this is just real history. This so isn't like my Hitler opinions on like, anything. Hey, no, we don't want these fuckers and <laughs> get the fuck out. Right. And that around the 1200s is when you start to see the cases of uh, ritual murder start to pop up throughout Europe. You don't see that before 1200s, right? Mm-hmm. which to also coincides. And so when you look at, at, at the history of the Jewish people post 1200 AD, they've been run out of 116 or 117 countries, like thousands of cities have run them out of town um, for failure to integrate, uh, uh, you know, um, unethical business practices and also suspicion of ritual murders, um, which really still go on to this very day. And I will tell you, and up to and including the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were all conducted in a manner consistent with Jewish ritual sacrifice. Hmm. So, and that I can screen share, that I can show you some things if you want to see. Um, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Give me a, give me about a minute to pull all of my stuff up. Oh, I wasn't going to do much screen share. It gets harder and harder on me to do this stuff. Well, while you uh, look up your stuff, I would say, um, you know, to ghost, you know, I don't know if you remember when we were talking about, uh, we were talking about the Pilgrim Society, you and I were, and mm-hmm. then we talked about uh, separately, I talked about, you know, the uh, Safari Club and all yeah. this stuff. And the Safari Club, Club comes out of a lot of the shit that Permindex was doing. And Can you name just- any of the members of the Safari Club? uh there's uh well been salem bin laden right i mean he was involved uh-huh. um there's a there's quite a few i you know I, there was a moroccan involved do you remember the name of the moroccan general involved uh no but i do remember the saudi arms dealer okay um uh, the, saudi moroccan, Arabia, the moroccan general real quick the moroccan general involved was a guy named ahmed delimi and ahmed yes, delimi was also the dark complected man in Dealey plaza who was next to the umbrella man Oh my God. So this is why he gets that spot is because of, uh, he was a Mossad assassination coordinator back then. You see the relationship between Morocco and Israel was super tight Mm -hmm. because there was a big influx of Sephardic Jews in Morocco. And so Israel knew that they could exploit that in their relationship with them. And they did. And so for a long time, you had a very tight intelligence relationship between, uh, Morocco. They were in the fold with us included, but the fold kind of fell apart. Sometime in the 1980s, you know, when we went into Afghanistan, eventually the, uh, you know, the cabal ended up at the time of 9-11 was Israel, Saudis, and us, right? After the many, you know, decades of changes. But in the modern era, it's us and Israel. That's it. Mm, Uh, The cabal that is fucking the whole world is us and Israel. And let me tell you what, 
America is not the one calling the shots. Well, hey, buddy, it so, ain't us. It ain't no. the three of us. Okay, don't let me in with them. You know, we're <laughs> we're trying to be uh, normal. I'm trying to make a little bit of money betting and uh, doing a podcast. I'm not mm-hmm. you know, so talking with. Uh, here's the thing: if if Kanye would have just came out and maybe articulated his words a little bit better, kind of like what you're doing, Corey, and we are, he actually was probably stumbling onto some correct shit. Right, but a lot of the people out there who they they just don't understand the things to articulate, right? Like right. my knowledge of this is really deep because I've been studying this for years, um, and most people can't say the same, right? So it's really difficult. You know, you might know a little bit, but not enough to be able to say, you know, this is the deal. Um, fortunately, I um, have made it a point to study those particular things. Um, Which I'm glad someone like you did because I know. A lot of this goes over my head in, in certain areas, but then in certain areas, it's like, oh, shit, you know, light bulbs just start fucking firing off. And it's like, wow, OK, this is all making sense now. And, and all the connections that, you you know, I mean, it's it's a huge fucking spider web. Well, I was oh, it's say, it's the biggest. The Kennedy is the center of the universe. Like, it Kennedy seems like it everything. was the beginning of a ritual, too, like a longstanding ritual, maybe not the beginning, but like more so with the uh, with the United States, because you get like the uh, the first like credit card coming out around then as well, and like all kinds of weird shit kind of ties together. And then within you that. fast forward to nine eleven, and you have the dancing Israelis, and it's mm-hmm. like making another ritual. It's like fuck. The future is a hefty responsibility, and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Okay, so this right here is a frame from the Robert Hughes film, and this has been tampered with. Um, you really can't tell anything. Everybody has been smudged and blurred out, right? Like you can clearly see, um, like right here, a face has been just smudged out with black ink, right? Mm-hmm. All these people are smudged. Uh, you can't see a damn thing, right? So, but uh, these uh, people like to leave a calling card, and so um, I did happen to find one single frame. Uh, this almost identical frame, but I realized that the frame that I found was not tampered with, and it looks like this. It's virtually a different picture, wow. but it's it's the same thing. Like when you go back and look, like this is the person in this Greco-Roman style robes here, and you can clearly see a face on the person. Uh, but when you go back to this, this is the official standardized yeah. version. The face has been blacked out, right? So this is clearly tampered with. You yeah, can't see any that. details on anything. But when you zoom in here, well, number one, you can clearly see that that's J.D. Tippett, the officer who's about to be shot uh, at around one o'clock uh, in Oak Cliff. He's standing on Houston Street. Like no, nobody's ever pointed that out before. But as you go through this like assembly of people here uh, uh, standing on Houston Street, and you know this is at the time of the assassination because this is the motorcycle cops who are behind Kennedy as the motorcade is pulling around the corner onto Elm Street, okay? So uh, if you take a look on the right here, you'll see there's a person wearing a costume of a parrot. You can see the yellow head with the black eyes and the orange beak. Um, I think there's some other people wearing costumes here, but I really can't say, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I can tell you with certainty, that is a parrot costume. Um, 
And the most important person here in this lineup of people is this guy right here in the middle who is wearing a very tall, ornate hat. It's kind of it's purple and it has some like uh, looks like gold or silver on it as a white uh, white collar hanging out here. A purple robe, and this is a patch on the shoulder here. And you can see a couple other people with patches on the shoulder here, right? They're all these people are all together. And so um then you find like this this group of four, right? It's a family of four, and they're right here in this photograph. Mm-hmm. When you look at what they're wearing, they're not wearing like normal clothes, they're wearing some kind of costume. Like this person in here, the the, the son, it looks like it looks like a son and a father and a mother, and here's a daughter wearing like a black cape. Like they're obvious he's wearing some sort of funky hat with a tall like thing on it. Reminds me of a Bobby. Right. That's exactly what I thought. Like a Bobby. Right. So it's a costume of some kind. And so this was kind of like weird me out. And so when you zoom in on this guy right here, you can kind of see like a little clearer. This person here looks they're wearing Greco Roman style robes. Um, You have one person with this tall funky hat. Here's another one right here. And here's a third one down a little bit further. Um, and you can see the big open collar here, and this one has an open collar here with the white shirt underneath. And it definitely, to me, looked like a guy in purple robes and a patch on the shoulder. And so when I really kind of understood like, what was going on here, I realized all these people with arrows above their head are wearing ornate outfits or some kind of costume. And like no one there, I, no one had ever brought this up to me before. And so then you go up to like the grassy knoll and you see like um, this is from the seconds immediately after the shooting. Um, this You have these kids up here and this kid has like tassels on his shoulder and like the inlay of his jacket on the front comes all the way down to the bottom. Almost looks like. And so I'm like, outfit. right, it's exactly it. I thought it was like a marching band. I'm like, mm-hmm. what is up with this fucking what is going on here? Right. Um and uh, I'm going to skip a bunch of these pictures here. Um, and then I find this here in the back of the Robert Hughes film. Now, this only took up about an inch in the back uh, of the video itself, of the film itself. But um, someone's getting arrested back here. And it looked like they look like the Wicked Witch of the West. Like they're wearing some kind of like, look like the witch yeah, outfit, the right? Yeah, look at this. It's very pronounced, too. Very pronounced, right? A big witch's hat. And I'm like, what the, why are people wearing costumes? At yeah, the Kennedy assassination, November. we got a parrot. We got a witch. Right. And so this is kind of a zoom in on it. You can see it a little more pronounced. And I realized that this person here was Clyde Haygood, who was the cop who ran up the knoll a couple minutes after the shooting. Uh, when you read his statements and go through what what really happened from witnesses and all that, because he ends up getting – he ends up lying about it after the fact. All these cops who actually did stuff um, had their – testimony like force changed and then Clyde Haygood actually ends up getting in a one car accident and suffered brain damage and so he never talked again um but yeah that's Clyde Haygood on the right and he's arresting what looks like the Wicked Witch of the West but then I realized that like that's not the Wicked Witch of the West like that is some sort of Hasidic Jewish hat and like this um and that the robe they're wearing is like this it's a it's a Hasidic jewish ceremonial robe and hat so let's go back and take another look at it now it makes a little bit more sense right and here you have two more jews in hasidic garb with white scarves on and you can tell this and when you watch the video it's a little more clear but they're also wearing these big round hasidic hats that they wear so you have all these jews up back on behind the grassy knoll within seconds of the assassination um then i realized in the video um when you watch this this is these two ha- these two little spots that i have clear it doesn't, doesn't look like people but they're actually moving 
right? And then when you read the statements of Joe Smith, what he did after the uh, assassination, when he runs back in the railroad yards, it became clear to me that this was Joe Smith and he had a suspect proned out um, underneath the car. Now, I know that Joe Smith took somebody into custody because this is him um, right here on the right. And he took this person into custody and he's walking them down. This is the slope of the grassy knoll after the assassination, probably by about a Two or three minutes, uh, two or three minutes after the assassination, he's walking this person down. And I kind of concluded based on the statements that he made that and, and the motion here of this, that this is where Joe Smith took his suspect into custody. And this is where he got arrested. Now, um, this person went on to be held for three weeks um, at, long after Lee Harvey Oswald was killed. Uh, Bill Decker was trying to put charges on this guy, couldn't hold him on anything related to the president, tried putting local charges on him. And after three weeks, they had to let this guy go. I have not confirmed his identity, but I have my suspicions. Um, so really what is going on here is uh, this is a Purim ritual ceremony. And now Purim, when you study uh, the Jewish holidays, Purim is the tale of Esther and uh, a king named Haman, and basically Haman was going to kill all the Jews, and so Esther and Mordecai, they pray to God, and he, they get all the Jewish people to fast, and uh, God intervenes, and Haman is killed, and the Jews are saved. So Purim is the uh, ceremony, it's a celebration of the salvation of the Jewish people from Haman. Um, the way I interpret it is the celebration of the preemptive slaughter of their enemies. Um, and so when you look at a modern day Purim ceremony on the left, you've got the same exact thing, the tall hats with the design, the purple robes, the patch on the shoulder, the big white collar. Uh, um, yeah. So this is a Jewish ritual sacrifice, a symbolic Purim ceremony. And why are they doing a Purim ceremony? Well, because Kennedy is akin to Haman, because Kennedy was going to cut all aid to Israel, and he was going to prevent the Israelis from getting the bomb. And so they believe that this was no different than Haman ordering a decree to kill all the Jews, right? So Kennedy was going to prevent them from getting the bomb, which they believe would ultimately lead to the destruction of Israel and the Jewish people. Therefore, the killing of Kennedy was akin to the killing of Haman, the preemptive slaughter of their enemy, which is exactly what they did. Because make no mistake about it, Kennedy was going to shut down that whole fucking state. And we know this going back to what's called the Battle of Letters, the Battle of Letters between Kennedy and Ben-Gurion in May of 63, where Kennedy is demanding access to the Demona nuclear reactor in the Negev Desert. Now, the Israeli had been building a nuclear bomb factory since the late 1950s. They were helped by the French. They were helped by the Galen organization uh, out of Argentina. And in 1960, Time Magazine publishes an article stating that the Israelis are building nukes. Um, 20, 30 years later, you get Mordecai Venunu, who smuggled photographs out of the uh, facility in the Negev Desert called Demona. And they uh, basically published those. And then the whole world knew that the Israelis were, in fact, building nuclear weapons, and they deny it still to this very day. This is the reason why Kennedy was killed. And when you look back at the timing, the Battle of Letters, where basically Ben-Gurion told Kennedy to go fuck yourself. You're not going to get anybody in to inspect our nuclear reactor. Um, he told him that because he knew the assassination was already in the works because the Walker shooting happened on April 10th, and the Walker shooting was the shooting at General Edwin Walker's house, which was meant to set up Lee Harvey Oswald um, in the as a patsy in the assassination. That happened more than a month before the Battle of Letters, indicating the plot to kill Kennedy was well underway. I put the plot to kill Kennedy as having been 
finalized um, somewhere around February of 1963, because in March of 1963, we have Oswald allegedly ordering the rifle and the handgun to a P.O. box. However, um, he never ordered the rifle, nor did he order the handgun because problems with the P.O. box, problems with the money order. It was obviously a false trail leading to Oswald. <clears throat> and that all happened long before the Battle of Letters in May of 63. So we can definitely say with certainty the plot to kill Kennedy was on for at least nine or ten months, probably slightly even longer. I believe that there was a board meeting of uh, Permindex. All that says is in spring of, of 1963. Um, and I have no doubts that that meeting of Permandex, which I believe was in America in New York City, um, I believe that was when the finalization of the plans to kill Kennedy were put into place. And then everyone was like, everyone went to everyone to fulfill their roles at that time. The CIA had things to do. The mob had things to do. Even the Israelis had things to do via Jack Ruby. Because Jack Ruby was directly connected to Meyer Lansky. The people were like, oh, well, Jack Ruby was a Jew. He couldn't have been in the fucking mob. What a bunch of dummies. Um, you know, so Jack Ruby worked directly for Meyer Lansky. He was connected to all the big mob bosses. Um, you know, he was connected to Giancana in Chicago. And Giancana worked for a guy named Hyman Larner. Hyman Larner was the Jew who controlled the mob in Chicago. And Giancana was a front boss. And so, yeah, um, um, Jack Ruby was so high up in the mob that uh I, I, it, he was outside all the bounds of uh of the italian of the sicilians right so he would he would directly do things for meyer lansky or hyman larner or this the jewish controlling sect of the mob that is who jack ruby worked for so crazy yeah i forget where i was you're going on a this. roll here dude you mentioned something um about the railroad uh right behind the whole area that this was this was behind the the book so, uh, the area, right? yeah, yeah. So this railroad, because this was what was interesting when I was looking through this, and I kind of mentioned this to you earlier. I'm obviously not as educated on this stuff as you are, but this uh, Gordon Arnold dude that he was standing had, in front of the um, he was standing in front of the fence, and he says the bullets went over his head, and then he said one went past his ear, which was right. interesting. And then he goes on, so he's filming, right? He's trying to get like a good vantage point. Uh, he thought that the whole situation that he was going to go film was just a parade, but then he finds out later that Kennedy's going to be there, tries to get a good spot to film. Um, he's trying to get a good, a good in a good area, but a CIA agent supposedly flashes his badge at him, says, you can't come up here, go somewhere else. Um, he stands near the grassy knoll, from what I understand. A bullet whizzes past him, and then uh, he hits the deck, and a police officer without a hat, which is interesting, maybe the hat fell off in some chaos or whatever, but a police officer approaches Arnold here and says, I need your your video footage. Mm -hmm. And then he goes that this police officer, according to Arnold, goes to that railroad station and meets up with someone working at the railroad uh, and then gives him the camera, gives him all the footage. And the guy never gets his footage back. Is that true? Right. It's possible. No, I mean, we can't say with certainty, but the things he say are they they don't conflict with how I've put together the the. the the flow of the assassination. So, yeah, but there's no real evidence that he was there. It's just that his statements are seemingly in line with what I have uh, put together. And I'm sure so. that you've seen this photo, right? This, this one of, uh, it's in. Yeah. I don't, that's, that's nonsense. Yeah. It's you don't drunk. think it's real. No, I know it's not. Okay. Why is that? Yeah. Because I know who the shooters were and I know where they were. And I know that there was not a police officer in uniform directly behind the fence line. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, so let me get back to the ritual aspect. So on the photo on the left of the kids on the grassy knoll, the photo on the right are 
Jewish children wearing Purim ceremonial outfits. You'll notice the same tassels on the shoulder and the inlay it goes down the front of the outfit. So these lunatic fucking occultists uh, brought their children to see Kennedy get his head blown off, right? They knew he was going to – all the crowd there knew because they were all Jews who were really – and the way I see it is these guys are not like normal Jews. These are occultist fucking wacko Jews who are digging into like pre – uh, Abrahamic Canaanite religion stuff, right? That's where the overlap between the Egyptian gods and the, the Canaanite pagan deities and Baal and Set and all that stuff, like all kind of intermingle in this kind of weird Jewish occultist. The way I kind of compare these people is like the number of Muslims who are actual jihadists is like so fucking small. It's a fraction of a fraction of a percent. And I would put the number of like of these weirdo occultists within Judaism at the same thing, a fraction of a fraction of a percent. But I can tell you almost with certainty that this was coordinated through Meyer Lansky's rabbi. There's a lot of uh, government FBI documents, particularly in some CIA on Meyer Lansky's rabbi that I still need to get to. But that would be the connection because when you go back to like the assassination of Mayor Anton Cermak in 1931, or was it, that was 33. Anton Cermak is murdered in Miami in 1933. He's the mayor of Chicago. Um, he was basically had a beef with Al Capone and then after Al Capone, Frank Nitti. And fundamentally, um, he is, a hit is put out on him. And while he is with Roosevelt in Miami, the hit is pulled off by a guy named Dave Yaris, who was actually one of the shooters in the Kennedy assassination. Um, he, or, uh, Dave Yaris, a young 19 year old kid who's uh, sent from Chicago to Miami to work, um, the liquor lines for prohibition, um, he ends up getting a guy named Zangara, um, Giuseppe Zangara, to be the patsy in uh, in this assassination. And when you really uh, dig through the pictures in that assassination, you'll find these Purim rabbis there also in 1933, 30 fucking years before Kennedy was killed. So, yeah, yeah this is not new. This is not an aberrant this, uh, occurrence. This is uh, this is modus operandi for these people. And uh, I promise you, uh, there are these Purim rabbis in um, the Ambassador Hotel with Robert Kennedy. I promise you they're around somewhere around Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, um, all of these. These are all conducted in a manner that coincide with Jewish ritual sacrifice. So when we now I'm going to back this up many, many, many years, that ritual worship of supposed when moses went up to get the ten commandments it comes down they build the golden calf okay and he's like oh you can't be worshiping this and da 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 da, da. what is the correlation because I've, I've been thinking about this for for probably a, a month now since they found these red heifers okay why are they still so adamant about cow worship and does that ha- like maybe i'm just like, that i'm I know what you're talking about. I really can't comment on that too much, but I'll kind of explain to you how I kind of see the divergence here from the kind of traditional Orthodox Judaism that follows the Torah and the these kind of like modern day Jews who follow the Talmud, because there's a big difference, right? So there's a sect, it's about 10% of Jews around the world who are extreme Orthodox, and they fucking hate Israel. They hate the Zionists. Um, and they are very against uh, Talmudic Judaism, right? Because the Torah is good stuff. It's the Ten Commandments, right? It's like, don't steal, don't fuck your neighbor's wife. You know, don't. No, it's all that stuff, right? All that, don't kill people, whatever. So, but that's not the Talmud. So you have 
Moses who goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, right? And so the Torah eventually comes from the Ten Commandments. Waiting at the base of the mountain, you had like 70 rabbis, and they end up writing all the other shit that has nothing to do with the Torah. It's their interpretations of how to execute the Torah in daily life, uh, and that was called the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is the original documents that are basically these 70, 70 rabbis interpretation of the Torah. Okay. And so, but they add, of course they're humans. And so they add all their own shit to it and uh, all this crazy shit. And that the Sanhedrin over time, after the destruction of the temple and all that stuff, you know, hundreds of thousands of years later, eventually the Sanhedrin gets incorporated into the, the Babylonian Talmud, which really has nothing to do with the ancient Israelites who, from what I can tell, went extinct in 70 AD. So after 70 AD, what you have is you have a, uh, a more, how do I say this? Not I don't want to say enlightened, but the elitist classes of the day who were more Middle Easterner in, in Egypt and throughout Palestine, they were Middle Easterners. They were not black Africans, right? They adopted these ways going back to like before the time of Jesus, who wasn't a real person. Um, and then, um, by the time 550 comes around, they've kind of collected, this, I think it's 72 total books, including the Sanhedrin and a whole bunch of other stuff. And that eventually becomes the Babylonian Talmud. And when you read through it, it's a fucking book that basically is very anti-Christian. Um, it endorses all kinds of ritual sacrifice. And yeah, I don't know how I got on this tangent, but like, well, I mean, it's a uh, disgusting fucking book. And when you go and like, one thing I want to connect to modern day, when you read like statements from people like Tal Zaks, who was the head of fucking Moderna, who says his inspiration for creating the vaccine was the Talmud. It's like, what the fuck are you crazy fucking people talking about? So these sicko occultists are still around today running major companies. Well, they um, didn't even have the damn uh, virus when they created that vaccine either. They, they I know. That. Moderna specifically. That's the French guy, if I'm not mistaken, right? So, yeah, just a weird, weird thing. Uh, Corey, you were mentioning something though, and I stepped away briefly. But you know the the idea that everyone at this ritual uh, of JFK being sacrificed was uh, essentially Jewish. Obviously, there's your onlookers that that have right. nothing to do with the ritual, right? Correct. But they, the media, and and like more uh, you know mainstream stories about this, they point to figures like this babushka lady, right? Which I mean that that kind of makes you think that you know maybe she was some part of the ritual is that you know, just I, deliberate misdirection yeah i i think so because like uh when you look at all the pictures that have been put forth over the years of having been the babushka lady it's clearly like four or five different women that they've put okay. forth you know yeah. so well, yeah they say that there's one lady in particular i forget there is one lady in particular um and she's standing on the lawn and you can see her like taking pictures or filming or whatever she's never been identified you can clearly see her face from another film that's taken from up the grassy knoll as she goes running up the steps and it's like some old woman now beverly oliver it's I not beverly oliver she's that's a fucking she's a liar say. and an attention whore um she is not the fuck she would have been 17 at the time and when you listen sure. to her descriptions or conflicting descriptions over the years of where she was standing if she was even in daily plaza at all yeah. um it, it's most likely she was standing on houston street not anywhere near the fucking place where she says Definitely not where the babushka lady is, but yeah, it's really kind of pissed me off to a great degree that so many people have credited her with being the babushka lady when the various photographs that have been put forth as the babushka lady are definitely different women. And the one person who it is, is definitely in her 60s, if not older. And mm. so, 
Um, so, the, like I said, it's just deliberate misdirection. Is what? It yeah, is. I go. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Well, they put emphasis on things that don't matter, right? Like, sure. I swear to God, if I hear another person say that, like James Files or like Malcolm Wallace had anything to do with the assassination, I'm going to fucking lose it. Like, these are this is COINTELPRO. This what is about FBI Bush? infiltration. Bush Bush was in Dallas. He was definitely in Dealey Plaza. He says he wasn't, wasn't the Binsot, uh, uh, No, so here's the thing, family? Bush. Oh, no, um, never mind. That's we have we have a letter from Barbara Bush, his wife, who basically admits that they flew a private plane up to fucking Dallas from Houston, that George Bush dropped her off at a beauty salon, and she was getting her hair done when Kennedy was killed um, about a half an hour after the assassination, so probably about 1 o'clock. George Bush comes and picks her up from the hair salon in Dallas, and they rush to a private airport, okay? Now, this is probably 115-ish, 120-ish. Now, this timing of Barbara Bush's story completely coincides with a story involving Redbird Airport, uh, which is a small kind of private airport in Dallas. Uh, Barbara Bush describes how they headed back to the small airport. They got on a private plane, which belonged to Mr. Zappo, who was one of the guys who owned the Dallas Morning News, which all checks out. Um they then had to fly to Love Field, um, and then they had to return to the airport and then fly back to Love Field. And she describes this because they were dropping people off and picking people up. And this is exactly what's described by the operator at Redbird Airport. How a plane took off, said it was going one direction, ended up going the opposite direction, ended up at Love Field, returned from Love Field, and then took off again. So I'm Amen. concluding that the story Barbara Bush tells coincides with the Redbird Airport story, which would make perfect sense. And ultimately, they fly back to Houston on a private on a, on a public commercial plane from Dallas Love Field. So Dude, yeah. the foresight that the Bushes had, though, man, to to, you know, not implicate themselves in this is wild. I mean, they, they have like false, false, uh, you know, recollections of the past written down in journals. I know that Bush supposedly also like tried to rat out one of his friends for the killing of JFK. If you remember, I forget. Yeah, that. that's the story of um James Parrott. Uh, it's really kind of to me, it's doesn't really I don't put a lot of I mean, it's definitely interesting but i don't really it doesn't really answer anything it just shows that george bush was trying to create an alibi and deflect attention to someone else i mean so do you think he was he was a key player bush senior was a key player bush, you gotta think you gotta understand his role in the cia at the time he was sure. a he was an oil guy right he was a private sector oil guy and the cia had a need for private sector oil guys who had access to ports and boats for smuggling because the cia is a fucking smuggling operation yeah, yeah. um especially in the 60s 50 you know post-world war ii and 47 when they came about like those guys they were using like fucking disney on ice and ice capades as smuggling operations you know i mean like People don't understand how vast their network was, and that was basically what it was about. And so when you had a guy like George Bush who could provide ships for international smuggling, who had the ships, who had money, um, you know, you, you pull him into the CIA and you get him involved in operations, but he's not out there handling people. He's a money guy. Bush was elite, right? So. Yeah, Eastern Establishment, right? Yeah, yeah, but see, why was Bush in, in Texas? <laughs> if that's the case, then why was Bush in Dealey Plaza? If he's just a money guy, why is he there? Because they were all there. It was a fucking spectacle. All well, of them it was were probably there. Also, they all wanted to make sure that they like wouldn't rat on each other, even though it seemed like Bush uh, allegedly tried to do this. But there was yeah, some I mean, of that. But I think it was just they had they all had to be there for whatever weird, you know, for whatever weird they had to shit, see for like themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah, we all have to be a part of this. That's There's a lot of things that went on that were clearly like that, like uh, clearly initiation style, right? Like Jack Valente, 
Um, so Jack Valente is the shooter on the grassy knoll. And so when you come to understand that and come to understand who Jack Valente is, Jack Valente went on to run Hollywood for fucking 40 years. He became the head of the, the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America. Jack Valente created the rating system for fucking movies in this country. And he shot wow. Kennedy from the knoll. And I can prove it. Um, and so, see, they kind of hid him in plain sight. Right? Let's say any evidence came out that implicated Jack Valente. Oh, Jack Valente, the guy who runs the movies? He shot Kennedy? Ha <laughs> ha, you're crazy, right? That's, I mean, like, look at Chuck Barris. Chuck Barris came out and said he was a CIA assassin. He was the fucking host of the gong show, right? I have no doubts he was a CIA assassin. Well, dude, let's None go whatsoever. through this. If you don't mind, let's go through this kind of like step by step and really slowly, because this is fascinating to me that the dude that is so influential in Hollywood is actually the, the gunman here. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I never heard this theory, but yeah, if we but can, he's so much more than the gunman, slowly. he's so much more than the gunman. So I'll start with Jack when he was 15 years old, when Jack was 15 years old, 1936, um, his very first job is working for humble oil owned by Prescott Bush. And <laughs> okay. he was a hall. He was what was called a hall boy. That's how he started at least. Um, so he would run memos and he'd run mail back and forth and he just, whatever errands people need hand job here and there, whatever. Yeah. I think you're you're hitting onto something else there. Yes, I think that Jack got passed around because Jack was gay as fuck. Like that's not what the official story says, but he. When you come to understand who Jack Valenti was, he was gayer than a fucking three dollar bill. I was just guessing, but shit, I nailed that. So, head, huh? And you gotta think these guys fuck kids. They I mean they traffic in children. Yeah, yeah, right? unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, 15 years old, he goes to work for Humble Oil. Um, by he he goes to you know high school in Houston. And then he goes to the University of Texas at Houston. And from there, um, 1942-ish, he still working for Humble Oil, uh, and he's going to school at night, but the war breaks out. And so he has to go to World War II, right? So (laughs) this fucking guy, you can tell he's already got connections by the time he joins the uh, Air Force, right? He's part of the Air Corps. Um, when you really dig into his record, he's allegedly flew 51 bombing missions, um, and was like a war hero and all this shit. But really, when you dig into where he was during the fucking war, he was stationed in like Arizona training to be a fucking, he was training to be a pilot, training to do all this stuff. And then he was, he ends up getting, um, discharged before the war is even over in like early 45. Right. Stolen Valor. So, when I look at his, fu- it's stolen, stolen Valor. Like the fucking guy probably never left America. If anything, he flew to fucking Europe for like a day and came back. But the vast majority of the time he was allegedly a bombing hero. He was here in America doing what? I think he was doing sniper training for the fucking CIA. Um, because we have no evidence he flew a plane. Like you can't find any of those records. When you look at the, where he allegedly was, the bombing group he was allegedly associated with, his name is not listed anywhere. Um, what makes you lean towards the sniping training? Obviously, well, because he sense. fucking killed Kennedy and he was a hell of a shot. Plus, I have my suspicions. Okay, so Jack Valente ultimately is part of the CIA, and that I can prove because of documents. Well, actually, I'll prove it right now. Let me see. Um, While you're looking for that, one thing uh, I want to mention because I I feel like I'm just interrupting every time, Corey. So it's not my that's intention. Fine. I'm just trying to jump in. Um, the uh, Supposedly, there's a tape recordings analyzed of four shots, and uh, it, it, a lot of people think that there were only three shots that were fired there in the plaza. Oh, but no. there's in fact four. Is there? It more- was way more than that. It was at least six or seven, and p- could be up to as many as ten. 
Um, They recovered at least they recovered at least five bullets. Um, So, yeah, they're completely full of shit. When you go through the actual documents, the documents completely contradict (laughs) what the official story is. Like, did you see as well? Conspiracy theories. You know that a what was that ghost? I said, and we wonder why we have conspiracy theorists. Well, yeah, because we can't get a damn straight answer. I mean, uh, in the nineties, A and E ran a, a special as well, and they said that a French hit squad was in charge of doing this. That was hired okay. By, so uh, yeah, let me let me talk about that real quick. So um, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Joe West and his investigation into the Corsicans. And here's the thing: um, the Corsican stuff is very real. However, the Corsicans were not shooters. The CIA hired killers from all the fuck over the place to come to Texas and just hang out. <laughs> like uh, Hank Alborelli wrote a couple great books. Hank died last year, but he his last book is called Coup in Dallas. And he identified the Corsican assassins who were in Daly Plaza and in Are Dallas. Those the Frenchies? Day. The French? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the French. Uh, but they were not shooters. They were there to muddy the waters. So the CIA is not a bunch of idiots. Uh, they understand how investigations work. And like when they um, they had people come in from all over the world, there were at least a dozen mob guys walking around Daly Plaza. They had the Corsicans. There's rumors of Mexican assassins that had come in. When the FBI goes and does their fucking pulling, oh, what possible gunmen were in Daly Plaza or Dallas that week? They're going to find like 30 of them, right? And so where's sure. their investigation then? All 30. All, all 30, right? So, and, the, and what's that going to do? It's going to get them spinning their gears, going nowhere, right? Because well, it makes it so that there's so many different possibilities to where you can't settle on one. And so that's what I, why I find this interesting. And I'm not disagreeing with you at all, mm-hmm. but I just find it interesting that you, that you feel that you know 100% that 100%. you know who shot. And I, th- this is what I'm very interested to hear. Yeah, for sure. So, so um, remember, it all goes back to relationships, right? Relationships are key. Relationships are everything. So Jack Valente, so he goes off to college and he uh, goes to the war. Um, Something happens during the war, but I don't think he ever actually goes there. He comes back from the war, finishes up at the University of Texas at Houston, and then he applies to Harvard Business School. But he was kind of a shitty student. He was like a B student. So he applies to Harvard Business School and he gets rejected. Well, um, Instead of sending a letter to the dean, he actually flies up to fucking Boston and he goes and meets with this guy in person. And after three days, his rejection letter is now an acceptance letter. And not only that, he's put into like the highest honors program that there is at the, at the school when he got rejected for being a B student in the fucking first place. So who was it in 1948 pulling strings or who was it? Actually, this is 46. Who was in Harvard? Pulling strings, running student organizations um, with their foot in the door of the intelligence community in 46. Bush. Henry Kissinger. Oh, oh shit. Close. Same Close. thing. Yeah. Same thing. It is fucking <laughs> identical. It's, it's really the same thing. So Henry Kissinger is fucking at Harvard Business School, running student organizations, recruiting for the CIA uh, or, or intelligence in general because the CIA isn't around yet. But Kissinger is already in those circles um, by 46. So he pulls by 48 when fucking Valenti graduates from Harvard with a master's degree. Um, him and Kissinger become lifelong friends after that. Mm. That puts Valenti in the upper echelon of global pull in that, in that sphere of influence. Like it doesn't get any higher than that. I know Kissinger is Ryan's favorite 
dude uh, of all time. Uh, he's Kissinger a is, show. I was going to say, Corey, do you think pound for pound worst human of all time? Maybe Kissinger? Maybe worse than Hitler even? Hitler, we're not going to talk about Hitler today, but okay. not, Hitler is fucking Mahatma Gandhi compared to Kissinger. Thank you. Thank so, you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I stand behind that. I think he's the worst fucking person of all time. And po- so quite, very, quite possibly. Very, very possibly. Um, <laughs> if ever there was a, a, um, a facilitator of the New World Order, quote unquote, it was him. Going back to like probably in the womb, like I was probably evil in the fucking womb. He's like, an advocate for using nukes, not just having them, but using them. He wa- he's nukes. one of those guys who wants there to be half a million people in the world controlling everything, and half a million, you know, and then everybody else is a slave. Like that's the, what these yeah, people yeah. want ultimately. Wild, but yeah, let's get back to this this fellow that's in charge of so, um, so forty eight, he graduates Harvard Business School, and um. He is basically, from then on out, it's it's really strange because there's no explanation for a lot of his activities. Like, for example, um, he is put in touch with a guy named Arthur Krim. Um, and Arthur Krim is working in Hollywood with a guy named Lou Wasserman. And Lou Wasserman was running Universal, which at the time, um, that was when Universal had more power in Hollywood than anybody, right? The MPAA came along later, and Lou Wasserman was in control of Hollywood, and him and Jack Valente ended up becoming great friends. Well, um, they put Jack Valente as the government, as the go-between between Hollywood and the government on the film The Manchurian Candidate. Now, allegedly, Valenti has no history in government, and he has no experience in Hollywood. No, like, why would he get this key position? Obviously, because he was already plugged into those intelligence circles. Um, Arthur Krim had a wife named Matilda Krim. Uh, Matilda Krim was uh, having an affair with Johnson at the time the U.S. list liberty was going on. So you can see this kind of closed circle of people. Um, but yeah, so Jack Valente is getting these fucking, he's getting these jobs doing weird things um like coordinating hollywood for the government when he supposedly has no experience in either right obviously he's doing this at the behest of the cia um and then he opens up his permanent front job which is weekly and valente which is a uh advertising firm down in houston and right from the get-go he starts this in 19 let me see must have been 53 54 and immediately his clients were like Continental Oil, Humble Oil. He left Humble Oil to open up his own firm, advertising firm, basically. Again, that is Prescott Bushes. Prescott Bushes, right. Okay. And so he, right off the bat, his his uh, advertising firm, his advertising agency starts getting the biggest clients in the fucking world, right? It's wow. obvious he is connected um, in more ways than one just because of the, the level of business that he's getting from, you know, starting his own ad agency. He will run that ad agency through the 1950s up until November 22nd, 1963, when on November 22nd, 1963, he goes to work for Johnson in the White House as Johnson's right-hand man. He had been working with Johnson since 56, right? He had helped Johnson with his campaigns and as for like the Senator House or whatever the fuck Johnson was doing before he was the vice president. Um, He got Kennedy's gig in 1960 doing the advertising and promotion for Kennedy's campaign. Right. So Jack Valenti is a key figure um, in the world of uh, politics, 
post-1956 when he gets in with Lyndon Johnson, all right? And now, keep in mind, he was in allegedly in the war. Um, he's definitely plugged into intelligence communities. He went to Harvard. He's directly connected to Henry Kissinger all this entire time, right? Um, then um, when I really start to dig through the Jack Valenti file, it really kind of rocked me, the things that they actually allowed to, to leak. Mm. So well, let me show you some of this stuff. And when they show this stuff, I mean, you say yourself, you're surprised. Is he meant to be sort of a scapegoat for people that dig into this? Because obviously, no, I think what happens is over the years, I think people in modern day who release files from 50 years ago, they don't know what the fuck they're releasing. (laughs) They just don't. They don't understand. They're like, okay, Jack Valente worked in the White House. Big fucking deal. Right. They don't understand the relevance of that to someone like me who understands like timing and significant, the significance of timing of all the different things that he's done. Right. So. Well, dude, um, when there's names being thrown around too, like, you know, the Bush family and these other, you know, Meyer Lansky and all these other things, dude, I haven't fucking ever heard of Jack Valente myself. Mm -hmm. Nobody has. Fairly proficient when it comes to stuff like this, but. Right. No, like I said, there's levels to this. And I wonder if he's a scapegoat for people that are at a higher level of understanding with how the CIA worked during this this era. I don't think so. I think he was one of the protected ones. I think, um, see, the Jack Valenti file wasn't released until 2018. Wow. Um, Okay. Didn't know that. And it was it was released because of a a FOIA from what's the guy's name who does the Black Vault, Um, the Black Vault website. He does hundreds and hundreds of FOIAs every year. Okay. He he pulled this because it had something to do with the movies, right? He pulled Jack Valenti's file because it had movie stuff in it. And when I saw it, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like, this is probably, this is one of the most priceless files ever. Um, I've probably been able to to fill in the redactions on about a third of it. And there's about, I don't know, I'd say two to 300 pages that they never released that they were intentionally withholding. But those just go to show relationships because Jack Valenti got tied up in some some interesting things while he was uh, in the White House and out of the White House. But so December 12th, John, John Greenwald. Yeah, John Greenwald. Yeah. Okay. So, cool. um, so December 12th, 63, they're doing background checks on all these people. And so remember, Jack Valenti, his job up until November 22nd was running an advertising firm in Houston. No government job, period. Okay. But December 12th, 63, this is from C.D. Deloach to Mr. Moore. This is an internal document within the FBI to, I believe, CIA. Mr. Moore is CIA because I can't find a Mr. Moore who's a real name. Um, Walter Jenkins called me from the White House at 1240. He mentioned that the president planned to move several people in federal agencies over on the White House payroll. Captioned individual is one of these people. Okay. So the captioned individual is Jack Valente, and he had to be moved from a federal agency over onto the White House payroll. Well, what fucking federal agency could he possibly be working for if he was just running a goddamn advertising firm in Houston? There's only one, the CIA. Yeah, you'd think the CIA for sure. But yeah, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, ghost. That's wild, dude. I I don't know if you caught that whole thing, man, but, uh, you know, this first paragraph of this whole thing right here is... uh, I, no, I apologize. I did not. I had to break up a dog fight. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. But but you understand the significance of this document, right? I mean, it's basically yes. them telling them that Jack Valenti is in a fucking federal agency. And the only federal agency it could have possibly been was a CIA, especially when you look at his history with Kissinger and having been in the military and all this stuff and all the and him getting into Harvard. Like, it's obvious he's intelligence. And there's only one intelligence agency really in this country that doesn't anything valid. And that's the CIA. So is it is it fair to be skeptical of everyone that graduates from Yale and Harvard and places like this? Yes. That's what I thought, man. It's like it's yes. like it's so difficult to get into these places. They don't just take, 
intelligent people. It seems like you have to be connected. And if you're going to actually graduate from these places, I think these are just filtration mechanisms. They're recruiting exactly. infiltration mechanisms. I said very well said. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so then when you further dig into Jack Valente, like the FBI, like the FBI file, man, I tell you, everybody needs to read this thing. Like I've read it like a lot and there's still parts of it. I can't figure out, but it's, it's just so much. It's just a gift that keeps on giving. So F- uh, FBI probed Hollywood's Jack Valenti for mob ties because he was born into two mob families. He was born into the Valenti family, uh, which was connected to like Umberto Valenti, who was called Ghost back in the 20s. Um, okay. He's related to a guy named uh, Andrea Valenti out of Tampa. And that's important because Andrea Valenti was one of the other people arrested after the assassination of Mayor Anton Cermak in Miami. And that was coordinated through Traficante Sr., and Jack Valente, I believe, was controlled uh, through his mob ties under Traficante out of Tampa, Traficante Jr. Because uh, I have some documents that indicate Traficante introduced a hitman named, quote unquote, Max. Well, there we go. Like I told you, banger information after banger information, right? You get 45 additional minutes of just mind blowing stuff continuing to blow minds, is Corey Hughes. And I really appreciate that. So if you want to hear all that and many more episodes, head over to patreon.com slash dangerous world podcast. Ghost is also offering the additional 45 minutes on his Patreon as well. Thanks for the support, guys. Talk to you in a couple days here. Enjoy Thanksgiving. 